Well, as we welcome our friends in the Community Life Center, I want to invite everybody to turn with me in the Gospel of Luke to the 12th chapter. Last week we began a series of sermons on the subject of simplicity, how we can simplify our lives. And today we come to another topic, a a second discussion in that series. And as our guide, we're going to look at Luke chapter 12, an interesting encounter between Jesus and an unnamed individual who approached him with a question. So let me invite you to follow along as we begin in Luke 12, beginning in verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, You have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool! This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear, for life is more than food and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. How much more valuable you are than birds! Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the wild flowers grow. They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all such things. And your father knows you need them. But seek his kingdom And these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, or treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. 
For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, on a recent trip to the grocery store, I was asked by the family to please add a box of cereal to the shopping list. And we don't eat a lot of breakfast cereal in our house, so it had been a while since I had been down that particular aisle in the grocery store, and what I found there was nothing short of amazing. (laughs) Stretching out before me on both sides of the aisle, reaching half the width of the store, stacked from top to bottom, was every variety of breakfast cereal I had ever imagined possible, plus a whole bunch I hadn't. There were chocolate-flavored cereals and fruit-flavored cereals, and cinnamon-flavored cereals, and cereals that, based on the picture on the box, must be flavored like mulch. (laughs) I'm sure somewhere in the mix was a steak and potato-flavored variety. I just couldn't find it. I didn't stop to count, but I'm not exaggerating when I say there had to be nothing less than a hundred different types of cereal from which to choose. I was overwhelmed. So I just grabbed some cornflakes and kept going. (laughs) Now, in, in some ways, you could look at my experience on the cereal aisle as a good thing because it could be evidence of a well functioning economy. Business is booming, the stock market is up, unemployment is down, wages are holding steady, productivity is good, all indications are that capitalism is alive and well, and now for a little around less than three bucks I can have any kind of cereal I want. Three cheers for the free market. But at the same time you can also view my experience on that cereal aisle as an illustration of everything. That is wrong with us. I've got nothing against the cereal industry, but we live in a culture of incredible excess. We are surrounded by endless choice and overwhelming abundance. There are so many options available to us and so much stuff being thrown at us that after a while we begin to assume it is our birthright to have some of all of it. The images of material prosperity and financial abundance are so pervasive and they come at us from so many angles that we very quickly and without realizing it buy into the lie that more is always better. And so we wind up in an endless pursuit of stuff. We have so much stuff that we have literally run out of places to put it all. Where else but in America could the self-storage industry be worth $38 billion a year? Now, like I've already said, we began last week a, a series on simplicity, and we began by acknowledging that our lives are overcomplicated. We said that life is complicated enough as it is just by virtue of the fact that we live in a fallen world. But we take that complex life and we make it even more so, 
more, necess- uh, more complicated than is necessary because of the choices that we make and the, and the habits we adopt and the patterns of living that we fall into. And so we asked ourselves a question. How can we clear out some of the unnecessary complica- complications and complexity so that we can create a little bit of space for the presence of God to flourish in our lives? How do we clear away the weeds so the Word of God can take root and flourish in us? You may recall that we didn't come up with a lot of really practical answers if you were with us last Sunday. Our goal last week was simply to create a stirring in us, to to stir a yearning, a recognition that, that maybe something isn't right and we need to do something different. But today we begin the search for some practical answers to those questions and we do so by looking at this subject of money and possessions if we are serious about living lives of godly simplicity i am convinced that it begins with our wallets and our checkbooks i am convinced of that because i am convinced that the bible is convinced of that And that might sound a little disappointing if you're looking for something more spiritual or mystical. But the Bible does not recognize a hard distinction between our material lives on the one hand and our spiritual lives on the other. To the contrary, the Bible would have us to understand that our spiritual lives are profoundly shaped by our material lives. In the last words of this reading, the last verse that we just read in Luke 12, Jesus says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now notice the order in which he puts that. He does not say that our treasure goes to wherever it is we first place our hearts. He flips it around. He says our hearts will follow to the place where we first put our treasure. In other words, the places and the ways we invest our material lives is the place where our heart will naturally follow. So if we want to reshape our hearts, if we want to redirect the heart of our lives, we don't do it by sitting under a tree and thinking about it. We do it by changing the way we spend our money, by the ways that we invest our treasures. Which brings us to the conversation that Jesus has in the first part of Luke chapter 12. In the previous verses, if we had read them, we would see Jesus has just finished a teaching session. There's a crowd of people around him, and as was often the case, Jesus took the opportunity to teach them. And someone in the crowd, someone who's not identified by name to us, has been there listening to Jesus' teaching, and and he has recognized that Jesus clearly has a sense of wisdom and insight, perhaps more than average And so he goes to Jesus with a question. He's looking for some help. As is so often the case, in his family there is a dispute about an inheritance. And he feels like he's been cheated for some reason or another. And he wants Jesus in his wisdom and insight to arbitrate on his behalf, to mediate, to to render a judgment so that he can get what he is convinced he has coming to him. Now, on the surface... It seems like a fair question. Many of you have found yourselves probably in that very same situation. But rather than answer the question directly, 
as he did quite often, Jesus takes the question and flips it on its head. So rather than give a direct answer, he tells a story, a fictional story, a parable it is called. In the story, a farmer was blessed with an abundant harvest. We come to discover that the man was already wealthy to begin with. But now with this new abundant harvest coming in, his wealth is increasing several fold and he's faced with a sudden problem. The harvest is so great he has nowhere to put all of his stuff. So he comes up with a solution. He goes down the street, rents a large climate controlled stale storage unit to store the excess and then makes reservations for himself at a five star restaurant and sat down to toast his success. But rather than congratulating the man, Jesus called him a fool. Because the poor soul, and it turns out that's exactly what he was, the poor soul had no idea that an aneurysm would stop his heart in mid-beat that very night. And then what would become of all the abundance he had squirreled away for himself? Now, I'm going to be real honest with you. I do not like this story, not one bit. There are plenty of other passages we could turn to if we wanted some lessons about possessions and material wealth, and and they are disturbing, I will admit. I think, for example, about Jesus' encounter elsewhere in Luke with the so-called rich young ruler who Jesus tells to go and sell all of his possessions and, and give everything away to the poor. But when I read that story, I can rationalize it. I can argue to myself, I'm not a ruler and I'm not rich, at least by my standards. (laughs) By most people's standards, I am. But I can nevertheless create some objective distance between myself and that disturbing story. But I can't do that with this parable. It doesn't give me anywhere to hide. Because on the surface, this fictional farmer... He's everything we aspire to be in this country. You will notice that there is no hint here of corruption or theft or graft. He hasn't stolen anything. He hasn't mistreated his workers. He hasn't done anything that by the conventions of everyday morality would be considered wrong. To the contrary, he's hardworking. He's resourceful, he's deliberate, he's conservative, he's entrepreneurial, maybe a little bit lucky. But this guy's living the American dream. Who wouldn't want to be him? So where did he go wrong? If he wasn't corrupt, what earned him the status of a fool? Well, the answer seems to lie in the fact that as far as he was concerned, It was all about him. Notice the way that Jesus characterizes the fictional conversation the farmer has. It is a conversation with himself. In verse 19 he says, And I will say to myself, You have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. The man thinks of no one else consults no one else, gives to no one else, considers no one else. 
He's turned in completely on himself. Which means that even though he is technically honest and correct, he has nevertheless violated the spirit of what Jesus says are both the first and the second greatest commandments. Number one, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. And second, to love your neighbor as yourself. And in his quest for abundance, the man has forgotten all of that. And so Jesus characterizes the man's condition by saying that he is rich in things, but that he is not rich toward God. And then Jesus uses that parable to jumpstart a conversation with his disciples about anxiety in the very next verses. And there is almost nothing in life that promotes anxiety quicker than concerns about money and possessions. We're always worried about whether we have enough. Enough money, enough food, enough clothes, enough space, enough status, enough stuff. But ironically, Jesus says the best way to deal with anxiety is to go in the opposite direction than the man in the story did. The fictional farmer's way of dealing with worry was to accumulate more and to accumulate more until he didn't have room for it all, thinking that that would be the solution to his problem. But Jesus says the opposite. He says if you want to deal with anxiety, the way to do it is not to get more, but to have less. It's counterintuitive on the surface. But he says the more you get rid of stuff, the freer you become. Here's how he puts it. He says, do not be afraid, little flock. For your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourself that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will never fail. Where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You want to get rid of anxiety, start by getting rid of stuff. Now, it's important to recognize there's a, there's a qualification here. Jesus does not say that it is wrong or bad to have stuff. In and of itself, having stuff isn't the problem. If you go back into the Old Testament, read the story of the Exodus as God's leading the Hebrew people out of slavery in Egypt into freedom. He's sending them to a place called the Promised Land, a place that he says by his own description is, quote, flowing with milk and honey. That is a biblical image of prosperity. God is leading them into an abundant land, a land where they will have plenty, a land where they will have more than enough. God is a giving God. I've heard it described, heard it said that God is at his best when he's giving. Because that's who he is. That's what he does. He's a God who gives and then he gives and then he gives and then he gives on top of that. And then when he's done, just for good measure, he gives more. And so having stuff is by itself not evil. There is a reason to celebrate the proper use of things. There is reason to celebrate the right enjoyment of provisions that God provides for us. 
And a lack of proper provisions can create as much anxiety as a surplus does. So, so these verses is, are, are not to be taken as a call to a life of absolute poverty. It is a call, however, to recognize that with very little effort, and oftentimes without us being aware of it, the stuff we own begins to own us. Our resources and our possessions and the money we use to acquire them quickly become idols to us and they begin to control us. They consume our thoughts, they dictate our decisions, and as with the rich man in the fictional story, they corrupt our relationship with God and with our neighbor. And so Jesus is providing here for us a way to come out from under the control of things by getting rid of stuff. He asks us to give away, to let go, to reduce down our understanding of what we really need. Which of course raises, if you'll pardon the pun, raises the million dollar question. How much do we really need? How much is enough? How many boxes of breakfast cereal does it take to live a fulfilling life? At what point have we stopped being reasonable and started being covetous and greedy? Where's the line between having stuff and worshiping stuff? Well, unfortunately, there's no simple answer to that question because no two individuals, no two households, no two families, no two contexts are exactly the same. We all have different means, different resources, different demands, different needs, and different opportunities. And so an effort to lay down a hard and fast rule is destined to fail. Besides that, the gospel of Jesus Christ rails against hard rules. Legalism substitutes rules for faith. Legalism says in order to be right with God, you've got to do certain things and you've got to follow certain rules. Meanwhile, faith says that in order to be right with God, all you have to do is trust in Jesus Christ. And when that happens, he will cover you with his righteousness. And by that and by his merits alone, you will stand approved before God apart from anything you do. And that's true whether you're rich or poor or anywhere else in between. But while hard rules are not possible and not necessary, there are, I think, some guiding principles that we can all seek to employ in our efforts to be thoughtful and faithful in our use of stuff. And this morning, I want to very briefly offer to you some suggested principles that we can all begin to think about. You might want to jot them down. I will tell you up front, these are not original with me. I found these in a book that somebody gave me over 20 years ago by Richard Foster entitled The Celebration of Discipline. He's got an entire chapter dedicated to the issue of material and financial simplicity. And in that chapter, he lays out several guiding principles that we can follow in guiding our choices of how we use and spend money. And while any one of them could be taken and expanded at great length, I want to encourage you to take them and Use them in your own conversations, in your own household, and in your own prayer life to generate a discussion amongst yourselves about how to pursue simplicity. 
here are some principles. I'm going to give you nine of them, and I'm going to be brief. First, Foster suggests buying things primarily for their usefulness instead of their status. Buy things for their usefulness instead of their status. From the clothes we wear to the cars we drive to the homes we live in to all the stuff we buy to put in it all, how useful and effective there's nothing wrong with style. There's nothing wrong with artistry. There's nothing wrong with aesthetic beauty. There's a place for all of that. But if our goal in buying stuff is to achieve status so that we can impress others or feel better about ourselves, then we have started the drift towards idolatry. Buy things for their usefulness and their functionality instead of for their status. Second, Avoid spending on things that produce an addiction or an unhealthy dependence. This could be a substance like food or drink, or, or, or it could be a, a piece of technology that we keep our face buried in all the time. Or it could be some form of entertainment that has come to consume us. Or it could be some, some pastime that's now more than a pastime, but an obsession. The moment we discover that there's something, something in our lives that we can't live without, that's the moment there's a problem and we need to back away. Let's stop spending money on things that produce an addiction or a dependence. Third, we need to get in the habit of giving things away. When a thing has gone unused for months or years, at some point you have to ask, why we are still holding on to it. My family has moved several times in the last 15 years. There are some boxes in my garage that haven't been opened since the first move. I have no idea what's in them. One of these days, when I'm really bored, I'm going to pop them open and look at it as a time capsule. But why am I still holding on to that stuff? When we give things away, we do more than declutter our closets. We start to reorient ourselves towards other people. We adopt a more open-handed posture. And by the way, let's not allow that mindset to only apply to the useless junk that's piled up in the corners of our garages. What about some things of value? The unridden bicycle, the unworn jewelry, the unused computer, the unwatched TV. Let's give away things that have value so that we can actually bless the lives of other people. Fourth, and when Richard Foster wrote this over 20 years ago, he would have no idea how prophetic it would be. Beware of the lure of technology. Now, technology is a good thing. Don't mishear me. It can help us be more productive and more efficient and we need to take advantage of it and here in the church office we're constantly having conversations how to be more useful with the technology that's at our hands so that we can communicate better and 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 manage things better but we also have to ask ourselves whether that newest or latest device is really going to make a meaningful difference in our lives this phone i hold in my hand can already process information faster than i can think so what use is it me to go buy one that's even faster? I can't keep up with the one I got. 
At what point do we need a new phone? How much bigger screen of a TV do we really need? Beware of the lure of technology. Fifth, Foster says we can learn to enjoy things without having to own them. Now, there's nothing wrong with owning property, but I can also enjoy the resources of this world without having to own a piece of it. I can enjoy the beach or the lake. I can go for a walk on a mountain trail, enjoy a city park, go to the public library without having to have a deed of ownership in my hands. Sixth, and we're going to talk about this in more detail next week, we need to develop a deeper appreciation for creation. Go for a walk. Pay attention to a sunset. Listen to the evening crickets. These things can do more than just be therapeutic, as good as that is. It also helps us to rediscover a sense of the largeness of God. Psalm 24 verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And when we look out from a mountain vista or look at the sunset or the sunrise on the horizon in front of us, we suddenly become aware of how big God is and how petty the things we spend our lives pursuing can sometimes be. Seventh, and this one I think speaks for itself, we need to be extremely careful about accumulating debt. It's one thing to take out a reasonable loan to purchase an affordable car or home, but the seductive lure of credit cards and all the other buy now and pay later schemes that are out there can quickly lock us into a downward spiral. And I'm going to be completely honest with you this morning and say I cannot imagine how much simpler my life would be if I had learned that message early in life. Eighth. And this one requires thoughtfulness. We should be mindful of economic practices that breed injustice or oppression. Now we live in an increasingly integrated global economy, so it isn't always easy to know where the stuff we buy comes from. The supply chains for some of the most basic products that we use every day spread across the globe. But that doesn't excuse us from being informed customers and consumers. Whether it's the coffee that we drink, or the clothes that we wear, or the gadgets that we use, we need to spend our money in ways that do not contribute to the unfair treatment of other people. And then finally this morning, most importantly and above all, we need to avoid spending money on anything that distracts us from the kingdom of God. Jesus said repeatedly that God's kingdom should be our first priority in every area of life. Now, admittedly, it will require discernment to recognize when the kingdom is being crowded out of our view because we can rationalize just about anything, but it's not impossible to know. When there's no time or space in our daily lives for being with God, something's got to go. When there's some status or position or possession that has become the focus of our thoughts day and night, something has got to go. When our money 
goes to habits or behaviors or possessions that actively work against the purposes of God, something has got to go. We should seek first the kingdom of God, Jesus said, and then everything will be added to us. Now you will notice the one thing I have not mentioned so far, and that is giving to the church. And that's very intentional. We often think that that's all that stewardship is about. You give your part to the church and the rest is yours to do with as you please. But that's wrong-headed. Yes, we're called to give. But what we give to the church and the support of its ministries is to be a reflection of what is true of all of our possessions. And that is that it all belongs to God. And that we are to use it as stewards on His behalf. So if we take these principles and we apply them to our daily decisions, maybe we will begin to notice there are places where we can simplify our lives. We can live with less, less stuff, but more joy, less stuff, but more relationships, less stuff, but more God. The dangerous thing about money and possessions is there's a fine line between being reasonable being foolish and the world is not going to encourage us to identify that line it will praise us and celebrate us when we become rich in the things but the world will not care one bit if we become poor in soul a life of godly simplicity however is lived in constant pursuit of staying focused on what is needful what is useful and what is good, letting everything else go. Let us pray that we will be that wise. Let's pray together. Father, were we to begin to count the blessings that you have poured out on us, we would quickly be overwhelmed. Forgive us for neglecting to account for all the ways you provide and bless. But even more so, forgive us for all the ways that we hoard and hold back. Teach us to let go and to create space for you so that you can have your way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Seek first the kingdom, Jesus said, and all these things will be added to you. It begins by seeking him. Our final hymn says simply, I'd rather have Jesus. As we close with those words, I would just ask a question, is that true of us? Do those words reflect the posture of our hearts? If not, then I pray that as we worship him in these next few moments, by his spirit, he will begin to move us so that it becomes true. And if it's not, let's put our treasures in a different place. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If you've never professed faith in Christ, as we sing, I would invite you forward. Let's begin that relationship together. Would you stand as we sing?